Father, thanks for the morning. Uh, Thanks for time together around you and around your word. Would you guide us and instruct us this morning? We're going to be speaking about something that many people are prone not to talk about. Um, It's a difficult topic to talk about. So would you help us to speak with clarity, with grace, with gentleness, with hopefulness uh, for the sweetness of what you have given us uh, in this special gift. And so would you guide our time and continue to encourage our hearts and equip us to serve your people around this community and around the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks before my wife and I got married, my dad uh, called me on the phone and said uh, something like this. Son, uh, you know, um, there's something I need to talk to you about. We we really don't talk much about this. But there's a good book that you ought to read before you get married about sex. And he gave me the title of the book. And I said, it's okay, Dad. Regine and I have already read it together and talked about it. Oh, good. And that was the end of the conversation. And this is a topic that is really hard to talk about. Uh, I preached this, what I'm going to talk to you about this morning, I preached this at church, oh, probably 20 years ago now when I was doing a series on the family. Uh, our oldest daughter was probably 7th, 8th, maybe ninth grade. I rarely would ask our kids about sermons um, after the fact. I didn't want to put pressure on them or myself. Uh, but that Sunday I wanted to know, what did she think? And so I said, um, so, what do you guys think about the sermon this morning? Silence. <laughs> no, really, I would like to know what you thought about it, how you were processing, how you're evaluating it. Dad, you can't talk about stuff like that in church. <laughs> and I just looked at her and said, honey. The world is screaming it at you. If I don't talk about it, who's going to talk about it? Because God's God's given us this gift. We've got to talk about it. And um, so we we talk about these things. We are not ashamed to talk about them. I talk about this a lot in counseling. It often comes up in marital counseling. I sometimes I always do it in premarital, obviously. Um, And. Sometimes we'll talk about it with guys when I'm just counseling men, particularly if they're struggling with sexual sin, um, pornography, those kinds of things. And without exception, either the couple, both members of the couple, one person in the couple or the individual, without exception, they always say, why has no one ever told me this? So this, this is the stuff you need to... Unfold them. If you get nothing else out of this, um, this first slide is going to give you everything you need to know to help couples. Right? Two guiding theses for the morning. One, you are not your own. Sex is not about you. Sex is not about what you get out of it. Is it pleasurable? Sure. But you are not your own. In fact, if you're looking and you haven't, if you haven't taken your Bibles yet to open, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7. And we're going to walk you through that. But 1 Corinthians 7 follows 1 Corinthians 6. I'm really insightful, really deep. I hope you guys can keep up. Um, The last verse in chapter 6 says this. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And I would say that there's probably an unfortunate chapter break there. That's not the way God wrote it, right? So we know God didn't put in chapters and verses. Those were editors that put those things later to help us find things. And that's probably an unfortunate break because everything that he says in chapter 7 flows out of that principle. You don't belong to you. This isn't about you. This is about how you're going to honor God with your body. Um, you, you have been designed by God to glorify him in your body. And you need to act on the reality that you belong to him. And you have been bought 
by the blood of Christ for that purpose. Second principle, sexual intimacy in marriage is not only or ultimately for you. Again, it it is pleasurable, but it is given to you not for your benefit, but it's given to you so that you can give a gift to your spouse. Now take that and apply that to anything that you're hearing from the world, and that turns it on its head. Because the world is all oriented towards, I don't care what people say about gender, this is about me and what I think and what I feel and what I want. And God has not given sexuality to us for me, though there are secondary benefits for me. He's given it to us as a gift that we might bestow on others. And obviously with that, if it's not a gift, then it's out of bounds, right? So if... If it's not something that is given in grace, in gentleness, in wisdom, befitting God's glory, then it's not a gift, it's a get. And that's not what God designed it to be. That will radically transform uh, the way your counselees are thinking about this. Now, we also want to understand the culture in which the New Testament was written. In the Roman Empire, in which Paul was writing, there were four kinds of marriages that were common. There was something that was called tent companionship. So that was a relationship between a, a man and his female slave. And she would, she would have residence in a tent. And when he wanted, he would go into the tent to cohabit with her. And that was considered some form of marital relationship, though no, not fully in the full sense of marriage. Um, And that would go on as long as the owner wanted it. What the slave wanted and what the woman wanted was irrelevant. Whether she wanted it or didn't want it was irrelevant. It went on according to his desires and his wants. Uh, There was a a common law marriage. It was recognized um, after a couple had been together, cohabiting together for after a year. Uh, interestingly, not too different from the state of Texas. The state of Texas says you don't have to mar- have a marriage license to be divorced, to be married. If you are cohabiting together and you present yourself as husband and wife and do things like wear rings, even though you have not been legally married and you do that for two years, you are now legally married. And in order to dissolve the relationship, you need to get a formal divorce. That's in Texas state law. I know that. I've got it in my notes somewhere. And it actually came to bear on one of my counseling cases, which is why I know it. So Roman law had something similar as well. There was also a purchased marriage where a father would sell his daughter to a man so that that man could have the daughter as a wife. And then there was what we might call a traditional marriage, a ceremony that looked something like our wedding ceremonies, at least civically. Um, Yet even there, divorce was common. There are records in historical documents from that time of some people who were married more than 20 times. So traditional marriage, but maybe secularly um, being held in the same kind of esteem that we do today. MacArthur has written, the early church had members that had lived together and were still living together under all four marriage arrangements. It also had those who had multiple marriages and multiple divorces. And not only that, some believers had gotten the notion that being single and celibate was more spiritual than being married, and they disparaged marriage entirely. Perhaps someone was teaching that sex was unspiritual and should be forsaken altogether. And all of this produced a slogan that the Corinthian church had taken in as their own, and evidently they had written the Apostle Paul about it in the series of letters that had gone back and forth between the two churches. And we find that in chapter 7, verse 1. And he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Now, in the Greek language, there are no such things as quotation marks. But I think what follows that statement should be in quotation marks. Paul is quoting. 
what the Corinthians had said to him. And he's addressing that issue. So he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, end quote. So they had written to him and said something like, it's best for a man and a woman, even if they're married, to not have physical relationship with one another. That should just be removed from their relationship. It's just complicating. It's difficult. We've got all this stuff going on in the culture. And let's just disparage all of it, get rid of all of it, and just simplify things, be all platonic, and not have that part be part of our relationship. And Paul says, let me write you, let me, let me talk to you about that issue. Is sex something that should be taken out of the relationship? He's calling to correct, excuse me, he's writing to correct their faulty thinking. Some were abusing spiritual liberty and physical desires, and they were engaging in, shall we say, a cornucopia of sexual indulgence. And some were withholding from God-given, God-approved marital love, supposing it to be dirty. So you've got these really conflicting ideas influencing the church, and Paul wants to fix all of it. And so that's where 1 Corinthians 7 comes from. And so let me give you seven principles um, about what Paul says in this passage. Principle one, sex and marriage is pure and holy, and it was Created by God. So he says in verse 2, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. Now, where did he get his wife? Where did this institution of marriage come from? From Genesis 2. So when Paul says each man is to have his own wife, he is saying there is such a thing as a husband relationship and a wife relationship. And though he doesn't spell it out in clear terms, it is clear that he understands that's a gift from God. God's designed it. God's planned it. God's instituted it. And God has given it to us in all of its forms. And in fact, it's not only created by God, but God calls it very good that a husband has a wife. God created the marital relationship, and with that, God created the sexual relationship within marriage. God is not ashamed of marital sexuality. In fact, he's so not ashamed, he wrote an entire book in the Old Testament about it. Song of Solomon. And please don't follow the Puritans. I love the Puritans, but please don't follow the Puritans and say, it's all, it's all about Christ and the church. No, it's all about a man and his godly love for his wife and how that overflows into their sexual union. God is not only ashamed, not ashamed of it, God likes it when the couple engages in it the way he designed it to be. It's not shameful It is a delight to him. Now, we can say that because Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3. See, you guys, man, you guys are really catching on. Numbers are important, right? So what happens in Genesis 3? The fall. So you can say, oh, well, God loved it back in Genesis 2 when the fall didn't happen. But after Genesis 3, we've got sin and now God has a different view. Is that right? It's still called honorable even after sin. Enters the world. So Hebrews thirteen four, um, Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Because it's honorable. It's an honorable gift from God. Even when sin has perverted its uses. It is not fundamentally dishonorable. Now there are dishonorable uses of it. But within the context of marriage, the way God has made it, it's not dishonorable. It is honorable. In fact, since physical intimacy is created by God and commanded by God, sex in marriage is an act of worship that is done for God's glory. You can take 1 Corinthians 10.31 and apply it, right? So then, whether you eat or drink, what's the next phrase? Whatever you do. Do it for the glory of God. This fits whatever. It could be done for God's glory. 
Paul Tripp says in his book, Sex and Money, sex is an act of worship. And the true worship of God will determine what happens in your sexual life. In sex, you are always worshiping something. Your sexual life is shaped by the worship of God, the worship of self, the worship of the other person, or the worship of what you get out of sex. This means that in sex, you and I are always surrendering our hearts to something. So sex is reflecting what we're worshiping, what we're desiring, what we are wanting. So I would say it this way. Sex in marriage is as holy as praying, as reading the Bible, as preaching, as giving, as teaching a Sunday school class. We might even say that sexual relations within the marital union are a spiritual discipline. Um, It is a discipline in which we demonstrate our love for Christ and our submission to him. So sex in marriage is holy. It's an act of worship. But again, listen to what Tripp says. Sex in marriage isn't made holy simply because it's, it's in marriage any more than talk in marriage is made holy because it's in marriage. Both sex and talk are made holy by the intentions of your heart and the intentions are made holy when by powerful transforming grace you love God above all else and your neighbor as yourself. So, sex in marriage is pure and holy. Secondly, sex in marriage is a gift to protect our purity. Sexual relations in marriage are not only holy, but they're designed to keep us holy by protecting us from sexual immorality. Sexual intimacy in marriage is a protection so that you don't go outside the bounds of marriage for something that is illicit, ungodly, disobedient, and rebellious. So sex in marriage is a precaution for us. It just sounds wrong to say, doesn't it? At times. But that's what Paul says. Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and... Each woman is to have her own husband. This isn't just something for the guy to protect him. It's something to protect the woman as well, to keep her from following ungodly desires into ungodly relationships. It's a both and. And Paul is really clear. It is for the sake of immorality. In other words, to keep you out of immorality that you need to engage in marital intimacy. Now, don't hear from me that that is the only reason for sex in the marriage or that sex is the only reason for marriage. That's not true. Marriage is multifaceted. There are lots of things going on in that marital reunion. And it's not only because of that, but that is a legitimate outlet for us to engage in sexual union within the context of marriage so that we are protected Um, that's not the only provision for our immorality if you jump down to verse 9 start in verse 8 actually he says I say to the unmarried and to the widows that is good for them to remain even as I so if you're not married or if you've been widowed um, it's best to stay single. Verse 9. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So um, in order to stay out of immorality, get married if you can't control it. But first, ask the question. Can I be celibate for Christ to engage myself in ministry that I would not be able to engage in if I had a marriage and a family? So I can do more as a single man for Christ if I stay single. So am I willing to consider that? That's the middle, lighter part of the chapter starting in verse 32. Am I willing to consider that? But if I can't do that, then then get married to protect my morality. Um, So um, one provision for marital purity or for purity... Uh, sexually is to get married. Another provision is celibacy. And uh, we, we should we should be asking our young people, can you can you be celibate for Christ? And I had I had one guy challenge me with that. 
uh, before before uh, I met my wife. And he said, are you willing to invest yourself in following Christ and invest yourself in ministry and staying single so that you can be wholehearted in your devotion to Christ? And honestly, I, I gave that a lot of weight. I, I really felt like God was moving me that direction. And then one day I met this woman and all that went out the window. <laughs> but why should we just assume you can't be celibate? You can. God's grace is sufficient for that. So let me just sum this up with this statement in verse two. Uh, God is giving an emphatic no to the Corinthian philosophy of verse 1. And he is exhorting believers to indulge in a full conjugal life with their spouses. He's giving a hearty amen to sexual union within marriage. Randy Alcorn has written, God wants sex to be enjoyed so much in marriage that there will be no compulsion to have sex outside marriage. Um, Principle three. Sex is not the basis for marriage. Marriage is not first and foremost a physical union. While sex is part of marriage, sex does not equal marriage. And I simply mean by that it's not all about sex. Um, the person who marries only for sexual protection is marrying for the wrong reason. In fact, the most significant reason for marriage is as an expression of our love for Christ. And you know, you know this, right? Ephesians 5, verse 33. Um, start in verse 31. Paul says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. Now, what's the mystery? Now, in the New Testament, a mystery is something that has been withhidden, unknown, unrevealed previously, and now is being revealed. And he is just quoted from Genesis 2, 24. That's been revealed. They've known that since Moses wrote it. So that's not something that's been hidden. So what has been hidden that has been revealed for the first time by the pen of Paul? This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In other words, my marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church. Christ and the church is not patterned after marriage. Marriage is patterned after Christ and the church. And so what I do in my marriage says something about Christ and how he relates to the church. That makes my union with my wife not ultimately about us, but about him. That's something new. And that means my physical union with my wife is also saying something about Christ's union with his church. And how I relate to my wife and how she relates to me in our marriage is speaking about the union of Christ and the church. And we need to keep that in well, in appropriate perspective. David Pallison writes in Renewing Marital Intimacy, don't make it your goal in life to have a good marriage or a good sex life. Instead, make knowing your Redeemer your goal. Only he can teach you to love. Only he can change your heart towards your spouse. Principle four. The primary goal of sex is giving. Providing for your spouse. So let's look at verse three. Chapter seven. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. And as in verse two, it's not just about the husband. The wife has the same responsibility. So Paul says, and likewise, in the same manner, also the wife to her husband. In other words, the husband has a fulfillment of duty to the wife and the wife has a fulfillment of duty to the husband. The word fulfill is a command and it is a command that means something like to give fully and completely without reluctance, without hesitation, without inhibition. The word duty refers to the idea of doing good 
for the other person. And there's also a sense of it's not just duty, but it's joyful duty, right? Because all obedience in scripture is something that ought to be given joyfully. It's not like God says you can do it, but you can do it with a grumpy heart. Remember when we were disciplining our children one time uh, in front of, well, I pulled one of my kids out in front of their grandmother, my mother, and um, I'd taken her to discipline her and I brought her back and she had, you know, she was supposed to do something in relation to making things right with her grandmother. And she said something. I said, honey, do it with a do it with a happy heart. And my mother said, oh, Terry, isn't it enough that she just does it? My mom is a godly woman. I just thought, no, it's all about the heart. She has to do it with a happy heart. So obedience is always comes with the implied idea of doing it with happiness. This phrase implies I'm indebted physically to my spouse and I need to give her something that is my obligation and duty to give her. It's my responsibility. Now, admittedly, it's a joyful responsibility, but it is a responsibility. So let's draw out a couple of implications from this verse. The message of this verse in four words. Don't deprive your spouse. You must fulfill your duty. Now, when I say don't deprive your spouse, I'm not saying that on a given night, One or the other can't say to the other, it's not a gift tonight because I'm weary, I'm broken hearted, I'm grieving, I'm not feeling well. The kids have been after me hammer and tongs all day long. I just need some sleep. Okay, so some of you have heard that. I am, I am so concerned about what my schedule is for tomorrow. I need to get some sleep so I can be on game on tomorrow. How about tomorrow night instead? Paul's not saying you can't deprive your spouse ever. You can't say not tonight. By depriving, he's saying you can't withhold on an ongoing perpetual basis. This is talking about holding marital sexual union hostage to your will and your desires. You don't have that option. You have a responsibility to fulfill your duty to your spouse. That also means that marital intimacy in mar- marital intimacy is not a superfluous extra. It's not something like, well, we got the finances right, the kids are doing well, work is going well, ministry is going well, and if we have time, we're going to include this. No, no, no. It's an obligation. It's, it's front and center. It's, it's not the greatest duty in marriage, but it's an essential duty in marriage. You can't ignore it. It is, it is not superfluous. It is a mutual obligation. And I'm going to be stressing mutual. It's the same husband and wife throughout. It also means that sexual intimacy in marriage is an expression of selfless giving. Here's what Jesus says. It is better to give than to receive. That applies to marital sex. It's not better to receive sex than to give sex within the marital union. It's better to give the gift. There's massive import to that pursuing sexual pleasure through giving is not selfish but it is part of the joy that comes when one chooses to serve God and honor him so biblical love we think about biblical love biblical love is about giving to your needs and best interests regardless of the cost to me because of my love for Christ so it Marital love, just in broadest terms, is about giving, and that applies to the sexual union as well. If you give the gift 
with the intent of getting. It's not a gift. It's a get. It's manipulation. It's control for selfish purposes. I've counseled more than one couple that had difficulties. One couple, it it was astounding just how much conflict they had. And they were, and they regularly had like screaming arguments almost daily. And I said, so what about your sexual union? I mean, I'm thinking if my wife and I are in conflict like that, I mean, that's, that's gone. I'm thinking they probably haven't had sex in months. He said, oh, no, we're regular like three or four times a week. <laughs> Are you resolving your, you know, I, I knew enough. I knew they weren't resolving your conflict. So you're having sex without resolved conflict. What's going on in that case? They're using each other. That's not a gift. They're both getting, taking, and it's undermining their love for each other. It's always about giving. It's not about getting. That also means because sexuality is a gift to your spouse, you will give what is meaningful to her, not what is meaningful to you. It's an act of service. It's an act of love. It's an act of care. I have a friend that um, was talking to me one time about the marital struggles that they were having. At the time, they were married more than 20 years. They were approaching 25 years of marriage. And one of the things that came up in my first session talking to him was, he said, on our marital night, it didn't work. Sidebar, I always tell people, couples in premarital don't expect it to necessarily work the first time it's okay there's fun and learning and just don't get wrapped around that axle about your expectation he got wrapped around the axle and he said this to me quote i'm an italian stallion i've got a reputation to uphold for 25 years He was bitter about the wedding night. And it destroyed the marriage. Your duty is to care for your mate. That also means that whatever gift you have been given, you receive it with gratitude. We don't have time to unpack it. Go to first, or excuse me, go to Ephesians 5. There's a list in verses 3 and 4 of six different sins. All of them are connected to sexual sin of some kind. And Paul says, instead of doing that, cultivate gratitude. The antidote to sexual sin is cultivating gratitude for where you are in your sexual life now. And that works for a single person, a divorced person, a widowed person, a married person where there are physical infirmities, where that has become an impossibility to have sexual union. And it has to do with someone who's 24 years old and married for three weeks. And it is a very consistent part of their lives. Wherever you are, cultivate gratitude. Can, how thankful? How can you be thankful for your sexuality where you are right now? And I will regularly make that a homework assignment. I'll say, give me by by next week. I want you to give me twenty five ways that you can express gratitude for where you are in your sexual life right now. Uh, that's massively important. Principle five. God has created both husband and wife with equal ability to satisfy each other. So uh, notice verse four. The husband does not have authority. Excuse me. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own wife, but the wife does. That word authority means control. So the wife doesn't have control over her own body. Why? Because 
Her body is there as a gift to the husband. And the husband doesn't have control over his body. Why? Because his body is there as a gift to the wife. Both of them are given to each other, not for their own selfish pleasures that they receive. And again, think about what the world is saying. It's all about self and what I get and what I receive. And Jesus turns all of that on its head and said, it's about how you can be given to the other so the other has control and authority over it so that your body can be given to please the other. And notice that according to verse four, both husband and wife have the same command. It's mutual. It's not like the husband has authority and she just has to do everything. That's not what Paul's saying. The wife, as well as the husband, should be seeking to initiate the pleasing of the other. Sexual intimacy in marriage tests your willingness to submit to your mate's authority. That means sex isn't about being for him. It is, but it's also for her. It's mutual. It's for the both of them. Sidebar, which is not really a sidebar. Just because my wife doesn't have control over her body doesn't mean I can say, I have authority, you got to do what I say. That's not the point. Because it's all within the context of gift. Is this a gift? Tonight or in this season? Though we have authority and control over our mates, we can never ask them to do something that violates scripture or their conscience. The controlling principle is that in our sexual relationship, I am a servant to my wife. And I control her to the extent of I want and desire to give her a gift. And we actually use this terminology. I will ask her, is this a gift tonight? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. But that's the kind of terminology. That's, that's my control over her. Can I give you a gift? Am I giving a gift, or am I trying to take one from her? So here's the question. Don't husbands and wives have different levels of sexual desire? Yes. And it's a moving target. The desires are different before you have children, during pregnancy, after pregnancy, one child, six children. The desires are different at 20 than 75. The desires are different with physical issues. So what's the scripture telling us? God's word is telling us to sexually satisfy our mates and not to focus on our own level of desire. It's not about my desire. It's about her desire. From her perspective, it's not about her desire. It's about my desire. To refuse to consistently use your body to satisfy your mate is really rebellion against what God has said. So the one who has the proverbial headache or the proverbially busy schedule that precludes it, is being in rebellion against God by not receiving the gift that is being offered. It also means that one who has greater desire than the other, and invariably that happens, one or the other for a season or more, has more desire than the other, they need to temper those longings out of consideration for the mate. So let me help you breathe for a minute and uh, pull back and give you a, an easy example. So decades ago, my wife and I were renting a house. And that particular year, there were some things that had gone wrong with the house. A landlord had to replace the air conditioning, and then he had remodeled the kitchen because some things had broken in the kitchen. So he ripped out um, all the countertops and then 
added some additional cabinetry and then put in countertops with that. And I just told my wife, hey, the lease is coming up and I'm pretty sure that they're going to want to increase the rates. And it's appropriate given all the money that they've spent this year. And so sure enough, one day Robert comes by and he says, um, hey, lease is coming up next month and um, you know, want to know if you guys want to stay another year and said, yep, absolutely. He said, well, you know, we've got to raise the rates. And um, so I'm kind of bracing myself for what he's thinking. He <laughs> He was kind of a mousy guy and uh, not very assertive. And so he said, I'll tell you what, let's um, you think about a number and I think about a number and then I'll come back next month and we'll talk about it. I said, OK, well, you could have just given me a number, but OK. And so he came back. I don't remember the numbers anymore. I think we were renting for like three hundred and twenty five at the time. I told you it was decades ago. And um, and. Um, I don't remember what number he said, and I don't remember what I, I said. He, he came in, and he says, hey, do you think about a number? Yeah, I thought about a number. He said, well, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> and so I gave him my number, and then he gave me his number, and I just started laughing. Why? Because my number was like $25 higher than his number. <laughs> and I just looked at him and said, Robert, I think we can, I think we can sort this out. Same thing applies to this. If you come with the expectation of how much can I give and your spouse comes to you with the expectation how much can I give, you're going to figure it out. You're going to have different desires for yourselves, but you'll be able to come to union very easily. Um, What about couples that have sex rarely? Once or twice a year? Um... I had one couple come to me in their early 40s. They've been married 20 years. The last time they'd had sex was five years earlier. He told me in the first session, he said, we have spent more than half our marital life celibate. They're in their early 40s. Um, So you want to do some digging around. Why do they have sex so rarely? Uh, Is it a schedule? Is it a medical issue? Is it unresolved conflict? Is it adultery or some other sexual sin? Is it anger? Um, Is it self-gratification and pornography? Other kinds of sins? Has one or the other been abused in the past? Um, And in this situation, um, multiple of those applied. And, um, And God did a really good work. I don't have time to tell you the story, but God did an amazing work in that couple. Um... The reason couples have conflict about sexual issues is selfishness. It's the same as every other kind of uh, sin and conflict. James 4 applies, right? What's the reason, what's the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Isn't it your hedonistic desires? It's about you, your selfishness. Principle 6. Sex is to be regular, reciprocal, and continuous. Verse 5, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Depriving is a failure to fulfill one's duty for selfish reasons. Um, It it could be that the Corinthians missed everything Paul said in verses 3 and 4. I don't know. Um, How they could have done that, but he makes it really clear in verse 5. Stop depriving. And again, we're talking about something on an ongoing basis. We're not talking about an individual event. We're talking about the pattern of life, the habitual pattern within the marital union. And Paul says there are reasons for abstinence within marriage, but you've got to, there are three qualifications and you have to meet them all. Okay? So the three conditions for abstinence are, it is a mutual agreement. So stop depriving one another except by agreement. Every time I've counseled a couple that has been really irregular in marriage, it's always by default. Something happens. Schedule or... Sin that has made them come out of that union for a season and they just never get back in. It just kind of happens. There's never been a discussion. And when Paul says by agreement, that means we got to talk about it. 
and we talk about it and we say, Robert's rules of order. Don't do that, by the way. Robert's rules of order. Right. All in favor. I nay. Then the answer is nay. If there's not agreement, then you don't abstain. You continue in this relationship. Further, it has a definite end by agreement for a time. And Paul means us to understand by that the, the time frame is agreed on. So that we're not, it's not just this open ended, we're just gonna stop until. No, for a season we will do this and we specify the length of that season. And it is for a spiritual purpose. He says here, for the purpose of prayer, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That you can expand that beyond that um, to other kinds of spiritual purposes, spiritual needs, something that will give you undistracted devotion to Christ. That's the point. It's like fasting. We abstain from food so we can give our attention to the Lord in prayer. That's the intent. I don't know how many times I've counseled couples in this kind of crisis. I've never seen this. It always just happens. It's never for these reasons. Um, And it's a further sign of a poor communication between the two of them. He also says there are three other considerations about that abstinence in the verse. One is limited, limit the abstinence in marriage so that Satan's purposes will be thwarted. In other words, Satan will seek to destroy you by abstaining. Why? Immorality is verse, verse two. So he says, come back again. Come together, join yourselves sexually to one another so that Satan will not tempt you. Whoop, wrong button. There we go. Limited abstinence, note this, is permitted. It is not commanded. There will be lots of couples that never abstain in their marriage and they're not being disobedient. This is an allowance. It is not a mandate. It's not required. And spiritual life is never to be a pretext for denying your mate. Oh, I just need to spend some, a season in prayer. No, 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 no. You're just, you're just wanting to withhold a gift. And again, that's not mutual, right? So you can't just say, well, I'm holier and so we're going to abstain. Um. So the question always arises, just how often should couples have sex? One writer has noted this historically about sexual union in marriage. Between the third and 10th centuries, church authorities issued edicts forbidding sex on Saturdays and Wednesdays and Fridays. And also during the 40 day fast periods before Easter. And Christmas. And Pentecost. All for religious reasons. And then they kept adding feast days. And the days of the apostles to the prescription. As well as the days of female impurity. Until it reached the point. That as historian John Boswell has estimated. Only 44 days a year remained available for marital sex. Human nature being what it is, the church's prescriptions were enthusiastically ignored. (laughs) So how often should a couple have sex? This often. Enough to satisfy each other. So that they are cared for. And they understand that they've been given a gift that has come to them in delight. It should be often enough to avoid temptation. And it should be often enough to demonstrate consideration and preference of the other. So that the one says, it's not about me. It's about him. It's about her. John Piper has written, if spouses are committed to one another's pleasure, nobody goes to sleep disappointed. I don't have to be concerned with getting mine because my spouse is thinking of adventurous ways to enjoy what God has given us. And when someone is intent on getting their delight by being a delight, well, it just doesn't get much better than that. End quote.
Um, this is this is a really critical part of the marital life, and you want to help couples understand this. Um, one last principle, principle seven: both sex and celibacy are God's gracious gifts. You want to use them graciously. Everyone has a gracious gift from God. Some have celibacy given to them and some have marriage and sexual union given to them. Wherever they are, use it in a way that honors God and reflects your dependence on his grace. Celibacy is good, but it's not better than marriage. An unmarried and celibate person should give thanks for his or her sexuality and then use that celibacy to glorify God. Marriage is good. It's sanctified by God and for our protection and it's not better than celibacy. It's not a matter of one's better, one's worse. A married person should be giving thanks for his or her sexuality and then using that relationship to glorify God. So wherever you are, use what God has given you to glorify Him. And I'd say if you're not married, you have a desire to get married, you think, I, I just don't see how I can make it the next 50 years and remain pure. Okay. But today, you're celibate. Give thanks today for where you are today and cultivate that gift of celibacy that God has given you today. And then don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough troubles of its own. You just be faithful today. Whatever gift you have, you use it for God's glory. If you're married, God has given you the gift of sexuality. And your gift is to use that gift to give to your way to your wife or your spouse in the same way that God has given to you. It's a gift. It's a work of grace. Treat it that way. Okay. You guys have been given another gift. I finished four minutes early. 